0: Welcome back, or simply welcome to Pridecast live on KPFK ninety point seven FM. The next show is called "Stonewall Stories of Pride" with host Jonathan Welsh, and his guests are David Crab, Sandy Marks, Sri Latha Rajamani, and Josh Crow. So enjoy. One
1: Welcome to Stonewall Stories of Pride, I'm Jonathan Welch. In this hour, we will hear from four fantastic storytellers who are sharing their experiences with queerness. The personal is political, and the power of people's experiences helps others to grow and change, so we hope you enjoy this salon of storytellers we put together. Now, just a word of warning, these stories examine themes of sexuality, abuse, suicide, illness, and other topics that may be sensitive to the listening audience. Also, these stories were recorded together in a group, so you may hear feedback, laughter, and reaction from the other storytellers during any given performance. We hope you enjoy the show. She is an immigrant, a queer comedian and storyteller who got her start performing in Boston. And now she's based in New York where she's been quarantined with her dog, George. Please welcome Shrilata Rajamani.
2: Thank you so much, Jonathan. Uh, That was a very kind intro. Um, I grew up in India in, the, you know, in the early 1980s and through the 90s. And uh, when you grow up, you know, all the people that I've spoken to, um, you know, some, you know about their sexuality, uh, people, friends, like all of them talk about certain cultural influences that basically gave them a hint as to what their sexuality might be. You know, it could be movies, it could be something, you know, in the popular culture, like books, which was not You know, I didn't know what I was when I was growing up in India in the 1980s and 90s. All I knew was that I was somehow not fitting I just didn't feel like I fit in the general, you know, dynamic of my community, of my city, or, you know, generally I didn't fit in. I guess if I put, you know, this, um, like what movie uh, would, would have most excited, like if I had grown up in America in the 1980s, the movie that would have given me the most excitement would have probably been like Ferris Bueller's Day Out, because as a teenager, like going, you know, ditching school to have fun would have been literally the thing that would have popped me off. That would have been the best thing in the world. Like, you know, no, that was all, you know, I was like, that was my worldview at that time. You know, and uh, I, my family is pretty conservative and TV and movies weren't like a big thing. Like we didn't even have a TV at home for the longest time. So uh, my popular culture was usually uh, like influenced by Indian mythology, which was, uh, you know, which Indian mythology is surprisingly very, you know, um, you know, sex positive, very inclusive, you know, like we wrote the Kama Sutra, you're all welcome, by the way. So, but it was also, you know, apart from the sculptures and things that, you know, we really weren't allowed to see a lot of that. Just go, just pray before the god and leave. We couldn't see a lot of the cool things in the temples. Even the books that I read, they didn't really tell you much. Like, I wasn't allowed to read the Kama Sutra, but like the Mahabharata, Kunti, one of the, you know, prime, you know, characters there, she has like, five children by five different gods like i think mary should have taken lessons from her you know she was pretty <laughs> you know there out there right but all it did it was even the books like not comics even the actual books would basically describe it like this kunti is down in earth and the gods are in heaven with like a lot of jewels and glitter the gods gaze down at kunti and then kunti suddenly you know get, gives birth to a baby like that was it and i guess probably I mean, I still love glitter and costumes, and that's why I love Korean pop, and I think it probably has been this biggest influence in my life, Uh, but also, you know, uh, like, my family history is also, like, I have a great grandfather who married a banana tree because of a curse, so every family celebration, a banana (laughs) tree would be brought to, to, you know, kept in, and then, uh, you know, after the festival was over, the tree would be buried back in the backyard, so that You know and and it it was just it it was just very confusing it was i I, we didn't question things like as a teenager i i just think you know my at that time in india it was not just me like anybody growing up in india at that time we weren't really allowed to have hormones you know it was not you know it's probably you know one of the things but you know bollywood was the big you know bollywood still is but the Bollywood movies, when I was like, it usually would be, it didn't really give you a good idea of a sexual relationship. You know, basically it was, you know, a guy cat calls and harasses a girl, um, and then girl falls in love. And then, you know, uh, they start, you know, then they start singing and dancing. Usually you have like, you know, in in America, I've heard this expression uh, in conservative cultures, you know, a dance, but with room for Jesus. In India, it was basically dance, but not just a tree, the entire forest in the, you know? So it really, it, it just didn't give you a correct information on things. Um, I uh, also like went to a Catholic school and our sex, it was a very progressive Catholic school. Um, we did have sex ed in our school, uh, our nuns, you know, the nuns would, you know, would do it the video demonstration. So, which is also weird, like imagine getting a sex set from a nun. Okay. That is just super weird, right? Um, like I still remember hours where um, the nun showed us, you know, the video the condom of the banana thing and afterwards when I went back to the classroom during recess the nun was eating the banana that had been previously in the condom so I'm not not
0: even saying it
2: just gives you a very weird idea of like what it is but I remember parts of the video and thinking oh this is it just i mean a lot of kids in my class used to were getting a little bit excited, especially because at that time a lot of us were physically maturing as well. This was in middle school, and I didn't you know it i the act really didn't it, it just Grossed me out. It just repulsed me, and I I was just like, "Ew!" And you know, I just, you know, and I guess through my teenage years, I was what my family still thinks she's a good girl. She's not doing anything hanky panky like the neighbors' kids. You know, she is focused on her school. It wasn't that I was focused in my school. I still used to read a lot of forbidden books, like Lady Chatterley's Lover. It was forbidden in my school, but I still read it. It was more like I wasn't interested. So my family thought I was a good girl, Uh, but then when I was like you know hitting my 20s like when I turned 20 my family was like you know now is the time you know you need to get married and uh, it just it didn't you know there was just a lot of pressure and I was you know you I have I had gotten away with you know being the good girl just because I wasn't too interested but I was like I, I I hated the idea of getting married and I was feeling very I kept thinking why I'm feeling like this I'm just you know not you know, I, I I was basically not feeling like happy about it. And I kept denying that caused a lot of stress in my family. And I felt like I was causing so much pain uh, that I, um, and I thought this is my fault. I'm wrong. And I was very depressed. And I, uh, I consumed pesticide in an attempt to like, probably, you know, um, organic pesticide. So I'm still alive. I think I don't know, (laughs) but it, um, uh, but, it, it just basically all didn't help matters any, you know, It made, my family felt like very shocked uh, and I had disappointed them even more than they kind of piled on guilt. I think, you know, South Indian families we run on guilt and coconut oil basically. So I was, you know, uh, and I gave in, you know, I agreed to get married, arranged marriage. I mean, I didn't even care at that point, you know, it, I, I was not interested. So whatever happens, let it happen. Um, I got married um, and I had um uh, And when I got pregnant, it it almost felt like a relief that I don't have to go through this process anymore. Um, I was also in America at that time. Um, So, you know, and and on H-1 visa. And when you're on an H-1 visa, I think it means like not being in I'm an asexual and H-1 is great for asexuals, I think, because, you know, you work a lot. You don't really have to, you don't have a choice where your company posts you. Um, And, you know, uh, my child's father and I basically didn't really have a lot of physical relief. You know, relationship at all. Um, and looking back, I think at during those early childhood years of my daughter, I was pro- I was probably not a good you know parent i wasn't really setting that example of like you know a uh, comfortable happy family that you know you people see in in media and everywhere i i i didn't like being married i didn't like any obligations i felt very uncomfortable i felt very resentful and i would you know um, i probably wasn't you know the greatest uh, I, happiest parent. Uh, But then I had to move to North Carolina for work. And that actually was a relief, which probably is something you'll never hear a person of color say about going to North Carolina, especially in the early 2000s. But there, I'm saying it it was a relief. Um, I felt so, uh, because I was alone with my daughter. I I was the parent, but I was also living my own life. I had, you know, my own apartment and I was, it was just, it felt nice. And I realized this is what I want to do. So after that, when my, this was when my daughter was in middle school. And then when she was going to high school, she moved to Massachusetts uh, to be with, with, you know, near her dad. And I was like, I want to be there with her too. So I moved there. But when I was moving, I told my ex, at that time he was my ex still I told him that I want to be in my own you know I want to have my own apartment I want to stay separately and and you know I I was working for you know I I really I I work in tech support which is not like the super highest paying job so I was having a roommate and there I was in my like late 30s like living with a roommate uh, which probably you know people just out of you know college do here but it and I, I, every comic or in you know, everybody I meet, they complain about their roommates. I'm like, I loved it. I love living with you. It, you, you. It's great to live with someone with whom you don't have to have any kind of relationship, any kind of conversation. So I felt so great about it. And, uh, but in Boston, I discovered comedy, but I discovered it through improv because when you're in a new city and you don't know anybody, you take an improv class. I think that is a rite of passage, right? But through the improv uh, theater, I discovered Sextacular, and Sextacular was an organization that embraced all forms of sex positivity, which is how I um, I found, like, this is the thing they did in their first workshop. They were like, when is the time you felt, you know, happy, supremely happy, not as a mother, not as a daughter, as yourself? And I thought about it, and I realized the only time I felt that was when I sat on top of a Japanese toilet. Not kidding, guys. That was the time. Um, so, uh, but uh, through a spectacular, I discovered there are so many aspects of sexuality. There is one called asexual, um, and uh, that's me. And uh, I, uh, I, I came out last year in New York, um, and. Uh, I actually came out to my daughter and I said, you know, I am an asexual. And she said, oh, I thought all parents were. So, which is fine. Um, I'm in New York now. I am an asexual and I have a bidet. That's my story. Thank
1: you. Lata Rajamani. Srilata, thank you so much. That's such a wonderful story. Um, I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of questions for you uh, as well. So (laughs) I want to start with how old were you when you got married?
2: I was uh, 22. 22.
1: And this was an arranged marriage, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you really like did not have a lot of time, even if you felt like there there was some sexual exploration. It's not like you had a lot of time before getting settled down. And that's kind of a typical thing Mm -hmm. for for people in that culture. now, since you've come out as asexual, have you talked to your family about no. this outside your daughter? You haven't. Okay. No, Do you- because
2: I tried to, like even yesterday, I tried to, and my dad was, I tried to tell them I'm happy now. And my dad wasn't really willing to listen. He, we had a huge fight. And then in the evening yesterday, he texted me on WhatsApp to say today is a star birthday. So I was just like, I can't make him unhappy. And I felt, very, you know, I never. I'm. I think it's that is the reason why I haven't been able to go to India more often because I feel very uncomfortable about hiding a lot of these things from my parents, and uh, I also feel super guilty. And today was especially hard. It's my dad's 80th birthday, and I'm here, Mm -hmm. and and because of COVID, I couldn't go. Uh, But even so, I, I just feel guilty that I didn't go last year, you know. And yeah.
1: Yeah. And of course, we're recording this on Father's Day in the United States. So I'm sure you're surrounded by seeing a lot of people sharing stories of their dads. And uh, But happy birthday to your dad. I know that um, it can be very difficult during these times to be away from people that you love. Um, so So you haven't been able to talk to your family about that, but you feel secure in your life in the united states now as it is and you feel good about your sexuality now i'm not trying to put words in your mouth i'm just you know i do
2: i do i'm i'm happier now than i've ever been in my life i think uh you know apart from my daughter she i love her so much and uh and you know now and i don't feel regretful at all that i am i mean my family says i'm living selfishly but i don't feel that at all and Um, I would give up anything for my daughter in just, you know, in a minute. But apart from that, I want to live for myself. I mean, for George mostly, but for myself too. Um, But it it, it has been a while and I'm, I'm happy now, despite a pandemic, despite everything going on, I have been happier this year than I've ever been before. And I'm 46 years old now.
1: It's phenomenal. And I I don't know if I missed this, but you are physically near your daughter, right? Like she's not that far.
2: No, she is in Tokyo. She is. um, She's
1: in Tokyo. So I was totally wrong. So the complete opposite.
2: I texted her to say I've come out as an asexual and she said, oh, I thought all parents were. But yeah, but then she was, she is very supportive. Uh, She is very supportive and very, um, and she went to NYU. So she is, I guess, really woke. And also, that is the reason why I'm living in a studio. So it's it's both. Uh, I don't have money, guys. I'm just I. And why it takes up everything, but it also makes her a woke kid. I think so. She was very very cool about it. I kept the marriage because I was thinking, you know, I want her to go to you know to finish college, and that is why I came out last year after she finished college. I didn't want to have anything impacting. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it would in the end, but, you know, you never really know. And, you know, I owe, you know, as a parent, I, you know, she, she has right. She has a right to expect that from me, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: I, she didn't expect it in the end, but I just overthought a lot. And I came out to her last year and to the world.
1: That's a, that's very good parenting to always put your children first. And of course there comes a time when they grow up and then it becomes about you. And it's, it's a wonderful thing that you, one, have discovered this about yourself and that you're comfortable and sharing it with others, and also that you decided to come on here and share this with us. So. my dad will not see
2: this at all he will no it's
1: It's airing on kpfk uh, (laughs) in the western united states so unless he's deliberately tuning in i don't know if he's going to catch it but uh Rajamani, thank you so much it was such a pleasure next up i want to introduce josh crow josh is a third culture kid. He's born to a mother from Singapore and a Caucasian American father. Josh grew up eventually to be an actor. So that's what he is now. And he has gone on tour with Nickelodeon and Universal Studios and is proud to be the first uh, or lead actor for the first gay series in Singapore. Did I get that right, Josh?
3: Yeah, pretty much. That's you. It's weird to hear yeah i i'm definitely one of those people that like it's hard to hear compliments or like take things that i've done because you know yeah we're living days but any anyways yeah
1: (laughs) yeah yeah, whenever i have to write my own bio i just like roll my eyes the whole time so i completely understand they always
3: ask you to write your own bio i don't understand (laughs) why
1: (laughs) and i asked you to write your own bio for this (laughs) show so thank you so much
3: all right um So, like Jonathan said, I'm a third culture kid. So my mother's from Singapore and my father is, uh, well, his heritage is Scottish, but grew up in Georgia. So Scottish American. It's always been sort of that fight growing up. So we've either I'm supposed to follow my Asian side or I'm supposed to follow my white side. So I had to be the straight A student, but also 100% the absolute athlete and varsity star that needed to be for my dad. So that sort of like was always a challenge, like to uh, grow up and try and appease both sides. Overall, like what I wanted to share today really is that like I've never had a coming out. I've been outed uh, multiple times, And then even to my grandparents, it's kind of hilarious. I think I've been outed to them three times and very different reactions every time. And I'm not still not sure whether they remember any of it, really. But, uh, you know, like uh, just a quick little anecdote there. The last one was that my grandmother said to me, um, you know, you've always been the, the popular kid. And it is so in fashion to be gay. I tell my girls that I'm gay too, because it's just so in fashion. And like my grandmother is like 89, like turning. So she says her words are like that. And I'm like, okay, thanks, Ma. I am, thank you. I've always been the popular one. but it 's a family has been a hard one for me, and like i my mother will preach till the end of the days that blood is thicker than water, and that 's something that I knew I think even from a young kid like it's it 's really not true before I really knew my sexuality. I already knew I was quite different, um which is kind of what led me to be an actor i 've always been that kid that was not afraid to like just sing or or put on a show and, and just honestly, from what I knew back then too, it was, I wanted to make somebody smile. I knew it was in my heart to bring joy to others that otherwise would not have joy. When the irony of it all really is, when the doors are closed at home, it was a very dark place to be. My home was never really a home. My mother was very abusive, and it was also a thing of like, it's hard to hear that, and and even through a lot of counseling and from people back then, they would always say, well, your mother's from Singapore, and it could be a cultural thing. But I still would love to say this to everybody now. I don't think it's a cultural thing. Abuse is still abuse. Like, I mean, this is a person that, you know, she caned me. I would go to school with marks on my legs. I've been she threw a pair of scissors at me one time and you know, we've been rushed to the hospital. I've, I heard a story from my grandmother one time that she said to me, um, I was a baby and I was very curious with the iron and she stuck my hand with the iron to teach me a lesson. So this is for a long time. I thought that was my normal and it wasn't until like high school, like, so yeah, 14 when I realized it wasn't normal. And then it was sort of like that definition of what, what is normal. And my friends are finally like understanding what's really happening at home. And yeah, that was hard. I mean, like, I don't mean, sorry to get emotional here too, but like, you know, it was, it's it's still something that like, I think a lot of Asian kids, like we, we are told that a lot, you know, that it's cultural, but it really isn't. So I want to put that point out there really quick. And throughout it, like, I'm going to tell you some more pretty mood points here like it doesn't really get any easier my upbringing like after 14 was a little challenging so once my father kind of walked in on me one time and I was looking at gay porn so that was the first time I was very curious with it and we also grew up quite religious so this was definitely the number one topic for the day and from that day forward I was sent to multiple counselors both religious and secular the, I think it's hilarious to be a religious psychotherapist because it's pretty much you trying to console somebody at the same time forcing Bible verses down your throat. Like I really remembered having to memorize verses from Psalms and and these Proverbs or wherever, you know, and trying to sort of pray the gay way essentially after that it was like years of you know things just aren't going well and my parents then decided that it was time for me to leave the house so I essentially was kicked out of the house when I was 15 and through diplomatic situations I had to serve the military in Singapore for my mother's sake so a little history with that it's uh, in Singapore all males at the age of 18 have to go serve. It's a conscript army over there. It's much like Israel and what Switzerland does too. Because my mother has, they also have a law. they're not allowed to be dual citizen. So my mother has always been a Singaporean citizenship that has a green card here in America, a spousal green card. So she's never fully been an American, but we were raised fully over here our entire lives. So the easiest solution after my parents kicked me out I got sent to the military for a country that I've only gone to visit relatives for every once, every two years. And I felt, I felt so alone. And like this queer, even this queer story, I want to say, like, I know is almost, the details are not common, but the overall general census is that we've always, we were, we all feel alone. And that for a long time, I, I mean, I struggled with it for a while. I didn't understand how they could just send their child across the world. And I had to live with distant relatives that I've never met ever before. And then all of a sudden, now I'm in the military for a country that I have absolutely no pride for whatsoever. Um, And then had its own challenges through that. But there's always something in me that was a positive light. Because the first three days of my military experience, absolutely, I remember crying every night going back after they shaved my hair. I was completely bald sitting in my bunk and just not knowing what was happening. But the positive light in me just said, be strong and do the best that you can because this is the only thing that you can do. You have to survive. So I ended up becoming a tank commander and then was stationed in Australia for six months and then also stationed in Germany for six months. And it was, one of the best experiences i've ever had um i can say i'm fully trained to shoot honestly the world's largest gun on a track <laughs> that will <laughs> like i had a big gun let's <laughs> so, it was years so i my parents even didn't we never contacted each other they essentially and for a long time i really did feel like i was 100 marooned in Singapore. The, there was some points where there was an agreement that after I finished my service, which was going to be two and a half years, that they would agree to bring me back to the States and I can finish college and do just live my life. It was my duty to the family that I needed to save my mother from becoming a refugee, essentially. But that wasn't the case. I got out of military and I tried everything to get in contact, even through relatives, and it was an absolute no answer. So for yet again, I felt one more time that I was completely kicked out of the family. But that's the thing where I said, like, you know, there has always been that positive light in me. And from that moment, I remembered I did it when I first started military. I could do it again. I found my strength, did my thing, and ended up going for this crazy audition and booked a job at Universal Studios in Singapore and was part of that cast. So lived my life, did that. Then my father came to visit and he said, or he he saw me, this was actually still, it's it's hard. Like, so when you're in the military over there, you're not really completely out too. Like you have to kind of still go back sometimes. Like it's like National Guard or reserves here. And this was the time my father kind of just sprung a visit and came and saw me in uniform this one time. And then he just said to me that uh, he's, he said, you look great. And I'm proud of you. And for that, like it really confused me. I like couldn't I still had so much anger and resentment in my heart. I just looked at this man and I was like, You literally let your child go and and did nothing. You did nothing to help whatsoever. Then I realized, what if I change the perspective? A hard question that a lot of people when they hear my story is like, How can a parent disown a child? It's unimaginable. If you like really love your child, you're you're you would never do that. And for a long time, for sure, I thought that. I 100% believed it and I hated them so much for it. But then I realized my father allowed that to happen because maybe he thought this was the best thing for me and it was the only solution for me to grow as my own person because we need, I needed to get away from my mother. My mother was definitely not the healthy one in this situation, but he allowed myself to he knew I was strong enough to survive. So, like, I just, this is my closing statement here. I just wanna say my journey is still not over. My parents and I haven't spoken in years. I have hope for something better. I wanted to share this story because I know there are a lot out there who face these demons and don't know of an answer. But I'm not perfect and I'm learning every day. I look around me and know that every hardship I've been through has made me so much stronger, and I've learned to see the love that really is around. Chosen family is key, and you're not alone. Remember to think of the other side. There are many paths towards the same solution. It's about taking a breath, listening, and learning.
1: Thank you. Josh Crow, thank you. It seems as though from the beginning, I could see that your parents were at odds. And I think sometimes when there's an abusive, specifically an abusive mother, um, yeah. the father figure tends to sweep things under the rug and also kind of send you, send you going away as, as a sign of love. And it seems as though that's how you feel now.
3: Yeah, um, I, I mean, it took like about, let's see here, it's been like seven years since that moment when he said that. So it's been seven years since I've actually spoken to my father. Wow. So ironically, like even today, like, yes, it's Father's Day. And like, I think in the back of my head, like I've been sort of trying to like ignore it. Like uh, last year, he, read, he left me on red. I literally watched him read my message and the blue ticks went off and then I didn't get a response. And I was like, cool.
1: Cool. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's, it's difficult. It does sound as though your military service. So that was essentially something that you had to do for your mother's status as a, as a Singaporean. Is that right? Singaporean citizen? Yeah. Yeah.
3: And I mean, that was pretty much like her mantra as well. Like it was always about family duty. Like, I mean, I remembered her also saying like, I can't wait for the day that you guys have to take care of me. And I'm like.
1: (laughs) So it's not just you, you have other siblings.
3: Yeah, so I have a younger sibling and then I have two half siblings that are older, like same father, different mother. I see. Um, But they are much older. So we almost had like a bit of a generational gap. Um, and that was also a challenge. <laughs> sure. <laughs> the comparison between two, you know?
1: Yeah, and you end up feeling stuck sometimes between generations because, yeah. yeah. Um, so do you have a good relationship with, with Singapore itself because you, you've taken your career over there?
3: It's a uh, love-hate. Um, and this is sort of like going on with, I think, a lot of, like, I, when I say third culture kid, it really is that, because we are, like, I'm, I, fl- I look fully Asian, but I'm 100%, like, you hear me on the phone and you probably wouldn't even, like, think otherwise if you meet me and then you're, like, oh, I, honestly, people do this. Like, I've had phone meetings before and then they meet me in real life and they're, like, I did not expect you to look Asian. And I'm, like, well, I do. <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, so Singapore, that's another story that I could even go on to, but I don't want to like <laughs> take too much time for that because it was hard to just fit in anywhere. So for me, I've really learned how to like just take in what's around me and count my blessings and see really who truly is there um and then you kind of realize it's not very far off like even if you're very alone and you're feeling really that down there is somebody that's like right next to you that's just wanting to say hello
1: well josh we're very happy to have you here and thank you so much for telling your story it's my it's, pleasure it's, thank it's you a- so much
0: This is PrideCast Live on KPFK 90.7 FM. Today, we commemorate Pride Month with an 11-hour special program for you. And you're listening to Stonewall Stories of Pride with host Jonathan Welsh.
1: So next up, I would like to welcome another New Yorker. Uh, She is the co-host of Taboo Tales and Mistakes Were Made, and she's such a big deal that she has a documentary that has been made about her. It's called The Fabulist, chronicling all of her adventures and storytelling. It is currently going through the festival circuit. Please welcome Sandy Marks.
4: Hi, it's so good to be here. Um, All right, can you hear me?
1: You sound great.
4: Okay, great. Um so it was my first day at my very first job it was like 1981 1982 and it was at 400 Madison Avenue fancy New York City big shot talent agency office where like imagine Mad Men only updated with a lot of wood desks and carpeting and women looking like they had to be someplace and I was scared out of my wits because I had never held a job doing anything I had zero skills. I had gone to NYU, I wanted to be an actress. So I was in their drama department, which was not a great choice since I wasn't particularly talented or smart. And I don't know how I wound up there. They must've had a year where they really needed like they're, I don't know, they needed tuition. So I was in the school. So here I am sitting, waiting to meet my first boss at my first big job. And I only got the job because I was in a dance class with an old friend of mine, an actor named Peter Weller, who you might recognize his name. He later on went to become Robocop. So if an actor who has the gravitas to become a Robocop, you're gonna listen to anything he says. And he said to me in class, Sandy, you have a great personality. I really want you to be my agent. And when he first said that, I really thought he thought I had talent or maybe I was like packing some heat like I I was gonna be a somebody but what he meant was no, you have the kind of people skills I think you should train and learn how to be a talent agent. You can be an assistant I know my agent Michael needs people to work in the office and I figured maybe this is a sign I'm not particularly good at anything in the dance studio or in an acting studio Maybe I should try something else and I really did like people so I went and interviewed with Michael, who was very scary, but I did it. And a week later, I had been hired. And now I'm sitting in the reception area waiting to meet my first boss. And I am fidgeting. I'm wearing like Ann Taylor petite separates, casual separates. And I keep buttoning and unbuttoning my blouse because I figure if I open it too much, I'm going to look like a strumpet, which if you're too young to know, it's like a whore. And if I button it too high, I'm going to look just like I had no personality. So I'm thinking, just keep, stop fidgeting. Finally, Steven comes like wafting out on, it looks like on air, it looks like he's not on the ground. He's about 6'2", he's gorgeous. He's wearing a beige linen suit without wrinkles, which is, I don't know how anyone can do that. And he has on white buckskin lace-up shoes that match. He has prematurely gray hair and a mustache that matches. He's so gorgeous and he's all limbs. He's like arms and legs. It's like, if you guys know who Tommy Toon is, Stephen looked like he was ready to lead a gay parade. He was just stunning and graceful and fabulous. And he just took up a lot of air, which I absolutely loved. And I just, he said, come on back. And I just started following him. And he started pointing out the copy room and the room where we kept files where we had pictures and resumes because in the olden days we didn't have the internet. So pictures came in the mail. So we had a big file room with all that. He's showing me the phones and uh, the other employees and I'm not listening to anything. I'm just already gobsmacked with Stephen. I am in love with this strange man because I know I would go off a cliff with this guy if he said, follow me. And the reason I think I felt this way instantly is the thing about me is I am a gay man that happens to live inside a straight woman's body. So my orientation is to love men and I've, I've been married twice, I mean, that's my jam, but I love being surrounded by the kind of people that understand me, who are a little more exuberant, who make a point with a flare, who can be sarcastic and a little bawdy, and, like to maybe gossip with me, I don't know. But these are the pe- these were my people, and Stephen was mine. I knew he was going to be mine, and he was. So I went to work for him. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but he taught me how to answer the phone. And in the olden days, the phones had lots of buttons, so you have to press a button, and everyone was a different person on a different line. And then he taught me how to speak to casting directors, how to speak to other actors. And as time went on, he would teach me, okay, now this is how you get an extra appointment for another actor. And this is how you take a casting director out to lunch. And all these things that I never in a million years dreamt that I was going to ever get to do. I mean, I was not exactly a student and I certainly didn't know math. I couldn't add, I knew how to, make it maybe for the agency, but I couldn't count it. But it didn't matter. Stephen was going to teach me all this stuff. So he taught me all the important things, you know, like how to do business. But then more importantly, he taught me things that you need in life, life skills. Like he took me to his apartment and taught me how to make sauteed soft shell crabs. I mean, I never even knew there was a thing called a soft shell crab. And he took me to sample sales at Barney's, which is really, if you live in New York, that was a big thing. And he taught me how to just sort of dress properly when I go out dancing with him and all of his friends. And we'd spend nights at places like Studio 54 and Xenon and his friends were like running around doing poppers which was a drug they used to do in the old days so I was just running with my hands in my air like I didn't care like just pretending I fit in I really didn't quite fit in but I pretended I fit in and the only thing that I could give Stephen in return was every day at lunch at 12:30, we locked the door and I taught him the entire combination to the opening number of a chorus line which is a <laughs> wonderful number if you don't know it And it's something that can be taught. I know you know this. So we would lock the door and we would have our lunging and our hands and popping our head and doing our single pirouettes. And I would have him just do kick lines with me. And the two of us would laugh and scream. And no one knew what was going on behind the door except us. It was like our own private technicolor world. We were like, this to me was I somehow lucked out and got a job where I landed in Oz. The house fell. Everything now was perfect. Everything was coming up roses. It was so great. And I was working crazy hours, and my friends kept saying, you know, you're never around. Why don't you hang out with us? And I kept saying, oh, no, no, I'm too busy at work. And I kept saying, poor you. And I didn't want to say, not poor me. I'm the luckiest girl in the world because I was in love with my gorgeous gay boss who also let me meet all of his boyfriends and they were fantastic. They were gorgeous and fabulous and brilliant. One was better than the next. One week he had a guy came in who was in the Navy and he was wearing his dress whites. It was just like, I, I mean, I felt like Gene Kelly was going to start dancing. And then another week, he had another brilliant writer who went on to become pretty famous. And it was just like we were running a salon party and I was going to be Gertrude Stein. I don't know. It was just Algonquin in the office every day, all the time. I was the happiest person you can imagine. And this went on through 1982. And then... We had this one actor named Peter who was a delight, who we loved. And he kept calling over a period of a week and canceling these auditions that were surprising because he was very responsible. But he kept saying, I have a cold, and then it became the flu. And then he said, I think I might have pneumonia. We didn't know what was going on, but this is 1980, early 1983. And within a couple of weeks, Stephen and I were running over to St. Vincent's down in the West Village uh, to see Peter, who had some sort of gay pneumonia, or that's at least what he told us they were telling him it was. We had to get suited up. We wear our our gowns. We had on our masks. We had gloves. We didn't know what was going on. This is way before you were thinking coronavirus and having personal protection. This was just sort of a a big deal. And what I noticed when I went down the hall at the hospital at St. Vincent's was every room There were people in the same outfits. They're wearing the gowns, they had the masks, and every room had a bed filled with a young dude who was just seemed way too young to be there, very thin, looking just awful. Some of them had already lesions on their faces. Some of them were just coughing. It was really scary as you can imagine. And we kept saying to Peter, you're going to get better. They're going to find something. This will be fine. Well, as you can imagine, it wasn't. And what happened was we started losing Peter's and Peter had left us about a month later It was just so devastating and what we had to start doing is Stephen and I would start keeping sort of a dark outfit in the office hanging in our closet in our coat closet because we started going to memorial services two three times a week we were losing an entire renaissance of dancers choreographers actors directors, playwrights, they were going so quickly. I mean, it was almost, we couldn't even believe that this was real. And the memorial services were getting more and more like produced, you know, it started out, it was a small service. And then before you knew it, there were slideshows and and then there were huge flower baskets and then people singing live and performances. And it was just, then there was like a buffet. It would became like a thing where it was incredible sadness followed by all these memories of these people we loved and they were gone, they were disappearing. Every week we were losing more and more. And the nights at Studio 54 were coming to a complete halt and Stephen was changing. Now he was healthy, thank goodness, but he wasn't the same. He was losing that joy that we had where we would dance every day because He was scared and reasonably so. So he decided at a certain point, I've had enough, I'm gonna quit and he did and he gave me his job and I got promoted and I became an agent not knowing what the heck I was doing. And he moved on to become a public speaker doing great and I went on to become an agent. And then within three years, I became successful enough that I left with three partners and we formed our own agency and we had a lot of clients. And the first week I was at that job, I got this wooden box delivered, it was a gift. And I knew right away who it was from because there were these gorgeous, tall white tulips standing up perfectly still, Gorgeous, like a kick line. And it just said, knock them dead, babe. You're gonna do it. You you got what it takes. Thank you for being you and being my friend. And I was like, thank you for being my friend. If it weren't for him, I wouldn't have been there. And I have to say, I knew that things were gonna be okay for him and for me, and they were. But it was so bittersweet because we had lost so much. This technicolor world we live in had come so sepia. I mean, it just had changed so much. Now, I had spent years doing crazy things like, you know, dancing with Tony Bennett and hanging out with Marissa Tomei and all this stuff. But none of it compared, none of it compared to those afternoons at 1230 when Steven and I went in that room. We locked that door and we were doing fan kicks to, Mar- fan kicks to Marvin Hamlish. That was really living. Thank you.
1: Sandy, that was wonderful. Steve, your description of Stephen—Stephen is like who I wish I could have grown up to be. Like that is just a one, like like the idol that you see and you think like he is polished. He has it all.
0: And he um, still does.
1: And he still does. You still have a relationship with him.
4: Yeah, I performed this at I'm from uh, for an I'm from Driftwood show with David, Mm -hmm. and I surprised him. I invited Stephen. I didn't tell him why I was inviting him, and I hadn't seen him in over ten years. And he came to the show, and then I told that story, and he was just sitting there sobbing in the audience.
1: (sighs) I'm so glad that you guys have that relationship still, and I can I can't imagine what it must have been like to be not just gay people but the people who were in circles with gay people to okay. be losing all of those people in your life constantly to hang a dark suit in your office it's it, it's a level of devastation and we're going through something similar like that in the world right now you know it's it's a, a disease that's frightening and people don't know exactly how they catch it how they don't catch it what effect it's going to have on them and i think there's a great deal of that darkness that we're seeing 35 years later All over again, so it it feels very fresh.
4: It does. Except what's so uh, melancholy now is that people can't celebrate ones they've lost because they can't gather together. Right, and that's that's pretty devastating.
1: Sandy, thank you so much. It was wonderful. for having me next up is our final storyteller uh david crab is the host of risk in los angeles he's the author of the book bad kid and he's a member of the groundlings sunday company please welcome david crab
5: oh my god you should have had sandy clothes that was gorgeous compared to this little piece of whatever it is so uh many years ago throughout most of high school i had a job at a place in uh texas a little uh it was about you know half an hour from san antonio And it was at a place called Hastings Books, Music, and Videos. Now, Hastings Books, Music, and Video was basically like a southern version of Borders. And I loved working at Hastings because I worked in the music department. Uh, And uh, I love music, like music was my cultural gateway to everything fabulous and glittery and high fashion that I wasn't getting as a pretty much closeted gay kid in Texas in the 90s. And it was so fun, like one of my jobs in the music department was to make all the little end caps, like when there used to be a thing called music stores. Let me get my walkers kids and describe to you what it was like to actually go buy physical music. Um, There were posters everywhere. So my job was to make the decoration. So I would get all the Janet Jackson posters and the Janet Jackson CDs, and then I would get real crafty and queer with it. And I would cut them up with scissors and make curly cues, And then I would get like gold lame and it was crazy. I loved it. And then one day um, I was in my senior year of high school I just turned 18 and the boss, Neil, said, David, we're going to give you a promotion. You are going to be the assistant manager of the periodicals. And I wanted to seem excited, but I didn't know what the hell a periodical was. So I had to very embarrassingly ask, and they were like, David, magazines. And I was like, oh, I love magazines. And I did, I love <laughs> magazines. I love details, I love GQ. Like any red-blooded all-american boy my favorite magazine was andy warhol's interview um uh and i would read the party pages where like calvin klein threw a party and grace jones was the dj and i'm on and david bowie were drinking champagne like it was like ah yes i want to be there now i love reading magazines i love the cologne samples i love the fashion ads i loved all those marquee mark grabbing his crotch and the calvin klein ads of the era and i was like this is going to be my job to do this all day the thing i didn't know was that my job encapsulated pornos. And I didn't know, until I worked in that department, how many pornos Hastings sold. <laughs> um, Cause you know, when you're that age, now as a, as a queer kid, let me just say, you know, I feel like gay men have a much closer relationship to pornography. And I think a part of that, as much as it's a thing like the conservative right likes to say makes us perverts, we have that relationship because it's those people that make us have it. When you're a straight 13, 14-year-old boy, you get socialized sexually. It's fun to be with your buddies and find your dad's penthouse and playboy and look through them. And when you're gay and you're ashamed, it's private. It's your only outlet, right? So it was funny to be like a semi-closeted gay person in Texas in the 90s, because I was like the gay guy that was all right, because like straight guys, like you don't act too gay and you like Pearl Jam, so we'll let you by. Like that was the way that I was like out, but not. So... It was funny to all of a sudden be working in a stockroom all day. I wasn't cutting up Janet Jackson posters anymore. I was literally spending 20 hours a week scrolling through pornos. Because here was my job. I had to put the pornos in a green bag with a window at the top so you could see the title, but you couldn't see whatever sort of nudity, whatever's on the cover. But another part of my job was to get a little silver sticker and put it in the magazine so that if anyone tried to steal it, it would set off the alarms at the front of the store, which hilariously we joked about literally sounded like a robot saying porn, 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 and half the time it was porn. Um, and I would be back there with my cart of pornography and all my stickers and my bags and my tape. And it's funny when you move porn from like the pleasure center to the work center of the brain, it changes it. Like I started to resent the pornography. Like I, at first I would try to be nice with the little stickers and I would put them on the subscription card that falls out. And then I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And I would like put it over nipples. Uh, I would pull it, put it over genitalia. I would fold it so that if someone tried to open the centerfold, it would like rip a nipple off of each page. Do you know what I mean? I resented the pornography. And one day I was in back and I had uh, I had all my, you know, my wares, my tape and my stickers and my bags, and porn, porn, porn went off and the door opened and the manager brought back this boy. He was like 13, 14 years old. Um, a young, very innocent-faced Hispanic boy. Literally, he looked like he was dressed like a Mormon and like a white button-down, like tucked into slacks. And he had already started to cry, and the manager was like, you know, show me, take it out. And the kid reached into his jeans and he pulled out a green-wrapped corner magazine. Literally, with tears in his eyes, looking at me as I turned to him with all of the objects of his undoing. Like, I'm literally holding the bags with the stickers and the tape. And he's like, oh, you're the one that killed me. And we <laughs> lock eyes for a moment, As the manager is talking to him, he's like, I'm going to go get your your mom. And he's like, well, I'm here with my grandma, but please don't get her. I'm like, I'll call the police or I go get her. So the kid's like, you know, my grandmother's out there. He describes her. The manager leaves and I'm alone in this room with this kid. And as we're standing there, the rolled up green magazine fully unfurls to reveal that it is a magazine called, and I'm not lying, this magazine was published for about nine months, Nine Inch Males. (laughs) <laughs> which is this, which is a spin on the industrial band Nine Inch Nails, but you can guess what it means. The boy looks at me, look at the title. He bursts into tears and he just starts crying in that way where it's like mucus and it's guttural and there's words in there it's like like he's begging but there's no content like you need subtitles and i look at him and he just looks at me finally and he says help me and i'm like i don't know and as i'm answering he just gets up and he runs into the bathroom there's a bathroom like a work bathroom in the in the staff room and he slams the door and i go to the door and i'm like knocking on it and i can hear him in there and the fan is going and i get really scared because i start to think like is there a medical kid in there is there like aspirin or pills and because I can't help but think about just a few years before that when I was his age and I remember there were nights when I would just have these nightmares and I would wake up and I remember one night that I went into the bathroom at our house and I opened the cabinet it was the first time in my life at that age that I it's not like I consciously thought about hurting myself but I caught myself like looking at pills I realized that I was I was just reading pills to see like what they said they would do. And i remember my mom knocking on the door and seeing the water running and she's like are you okay you've been in here for like 15 minutes not long after that when i was 16 i would be outed accidentally by my guidance counselor cookie richardson uh who was a man question mark he was asking me some questions in front of my father about skipping school and misbehaving and when he went down his list about what if your dad knew you're on drugs what if your dad thought you got a girl pregnant and then he hit what if your dad found out you were gay and these were all hypotheticals but I didn't hear it that way and I burst into tears and I just started screaming he wouldn't understand and that was how I was outed that was like my moment and I thought this kid deserves to choose how this happens for him about 10 minutes after that the manager came into the storeroom with this woman who could not have been the worst person you would want like a very typical grandmother in all black she had a huge crucifix she was crying speaking in spanish just saying jorge jorge like already angry before and she doesn't even know what's coming Do you know what i mean jorge comes out of the bathroom he sits down neil is talking to her he hands her the magazine and she looks at the magazine and then she holds it up to him and says how could you be stealing this playboy and jorge looks through his tears at the magazine that's being held up And it is an anniversary issue of Playboy magazine. There is a redhead woman in a negligee. She's very busty and she's balancing a scoop of ice cream between her breasts and smiling. That was the magazine that was there because when he was in the bathroom, I was like, I can't fully fix this, but I can like switch out the magazines. And the kid started almost like laughing through tears to the point that I almost wanted to be like, kid, you have to calm down. You have to play into like, you know, and he was just like elated. He was like, ah, ha, ha. And I was like, calm it, calm down, calm down. She, so literally almost like in a movie, she grabs the kid by the collar and she's escorting him out. And I'll always remember as the door is closing, I remember two things. One, the grandmother looking at my cart of porn and saying to me, I'm so sorry, he tried to steal your things, which I want to be like, these aren't mine, like, but fine. But the other thing I remember is as the door was closing, there was a little diamond shaped window in the door and I remember the boy looking at me through it, just so elated, like he never, he couldn't say thank you, but like I knew what he was, and I pushed that cart out onto the floor about 10 minutes later after I kind of gathered myself and I saw that boy with his grandmother and this huge like six and a half foot tall man in like a trucker hat with tattoos and huge biceps and like, you know, like a farmer tan, like where the arms are red up to the middle of the bicep and he's talking to the boy who's clearly his son but he's looking at him in this way that isn't like you're in trouble. It's kind of like, ah, chip off the old block. And I go into this nightmare in my mind thinking like, oh my God, what if I just deprive this kid of the coming out? What if he needed the Cookie Richardson? Do you know what I mean? Like, what if for years from now, this kid is gonna come up being like, dad, I, I, did, I put Sonnen in, in my bangs. And the dad's gonna be like, He stole a Playboy, or like, Dad, they're doing Peter Pan in school, and guess what, they're letting a boy play him, it's me. He stole a Playboy. Like, I just keep imagining, what is this kid's life gonna be like? The kid left, and um, within the next six months, uh, I actually quit that job. Um, I became a barista, because I figured that the big brother element of the job was too weird, and that hopefully, nothing I could do beside, uh, behind an espresso machine, would ever um, accidentally out a child to his family. (laughs) Thank you.
1: David Crabb, thank you. That was fantastic. I have heard you tell this story many times. And my dream is that this will be broadcast somewhere where Jorge has grown up and he hears the story like an Unsolved mystery segment. he's like, that's my story. I know that person. And he reaches out and thanks you for that. Because of course, not even, I mean, 20, 25 years ago, for a kid to come out and discover their sexuality, it's it could be devastating, you know, because parents yeah. weren't as accepting as they are now. That's more a comment than a question.
5: Yeah, I still I still I do wonder about that. You know, like for all the ways that like in that story I paint the picture the way I was at it as something that was against my will, there is a part of me like I don't know if I think of myself as a particularly brave person and in a weird way. You know, Cookie Richardson didn't mean to do what he did, but he always checked on me after that. He felt in the room like, ugh. I mean, because I'm really the one that did it. Like I over responded because I was so emotionally, I guess, shocked by the question. And he was good to me after that. The rest of that school, he always saw me in the halls like, how are you? Like, how is your dad? So I don't know, as much as it was not the way I wanted it to happen, I wonder how much longer I would have put it off and how much longer might I have suffered under the secret? You know, so in a weird way, it was not what I wanted, but I'm always kind of thankful for that
1: guy. I think about like going back to Josh's story and um, and the counselors and, and your counselor. There's that thread, and I think counselors sometimes gaslight us a little bit, without realizing yeah. their immense responsibility and what they're yeah. holding. So, but I do think that as we as we get older, and we're just a, even if we're just a few years older than the kids who are coming out, we still have some sort of duty to make it a little bit easier for kids who are a little bit younger so you took that role on and I am sure that even though he eventually had to come out we hope and he's not closeted somewhere married to a to a woman in Iowa with seven I, kids <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope. <laughs> we hope but we hope that that's <laughs> that he did have that coming out but that it was a little bit easier because it bought him time and he wasn't outed in this way so it's so a wonderful story Thank you very much to Sri Lada Rajamani, Josh Crow, Sandy Marks, and David Crabb. This has been Stonewall Stories of Pride. I'm your host, Jonathan Welch. If you want to learn more about the Stonewall Democratic Club, you can visit us at www.stonewalldems.org, where you can find out information on membership and all of the action items and activities that we are taking part in during this very busy election year. Thanks for listening.
0: That was Stonewall Stories of Pride with host Jonathan Welsh. Thank you, Jonathan, for your great show commemorating Pride Month during this Pridecast Live. Donations help keep KPFK alive. Your tax-deductible donation helps fund new equipment, repairs, shows, community events, and station operation. Our programming is free of influence from big oil, pharmaceutical companies, banks, and the military-industrial complex. We don't take money from them. We depend on you. Help us keep KPFK and progressive, independent media alive. Go to kpfk.org and contribute today. Thank you for your support.
1: You were born.